Welcome to ANC. How are you guys? I met, I met some Longview, Texas today. I met a little Lancaster, PA today. I met some Holland, Michigan. Y'all don't even know where that is, probably. You know where Holland, Michigan is? Yeah, I met a lot of great people. Um, never, never ceases to amaze me who drifts in the doors of this little cafetorium. It's so amazing. Y'all get here early because all the new folks get here early. You can meet them all. You can pick them out of a barrel like goldfish. Super easy pickings. They sit there all nervous when it's still about 22 degrees. And they wonder, why did I wear shorts? Anyway, um, speaking of places, I'm going to confess a little distraction to you this morning. Let me just describe the few places on the earth that I have people that I love. You ready? Houston, Texas. Fort Myers, Florida. Mexico. And to the west. And I don't know if, if you guys see a pattern here, but it seems like everything I love is just under, like, storms and earthquakes. How many of you, did, of you guys even heard about the earthquake in Mexico? 8.6 on the Richter scale. That would have been front page news if it weren't for Harvey and Irma, right? Add to that the, the immigrant population of this country under siege. Every, the LGBT community under siege Everything it seems like this week that I love is just like in the crosshairs of something or other. So it's been a bit of a bizarre week. Um, what that generally means for me is that my mind is all over the place. So you're going to see that today. I don't know about the structure of my thoughts today. So if this appears a little ADD, it's because it is. Um, I was in Atlanta yesterday and all of Florida was in Atlanta. And it was interesting. In Austin, we see dogs in restaurants and in hotels because it's Austin. But you don't see that in Atlanta. Walking around Buckhead, you know, families with four dogs. Well, they're from Miami, right? They, they actually heeded the warnings, unlike my parents, and left. So tonight, as we rest and get ready for the school week, my parents live basically at the mouth of the Clusahatchee River, just south of Port Charlotte, north of Naples, in a town called Fort Myers. And as far as we can tell, that's going to be the next place that this storm goes. And so um, why, don't we, why don't we pray for those that are in the track uh, of this storm. And, you know, if, you're, if you haven't been watching the Weather Channel, uh, you may not know it, but the entire state of Florida is under siege at this point. There's never been anything quite like this that we've seen. Charlie was devastating, but it was the size of a, you know, of a, of a skill saw blade. This is 600 miles wide. So let's just pray. Not as if God isn't aware of his people and all people are his people, uh, but not if it's as if he isn't aware, but let's just tune our hearts this morning, and let's just lift up those people who are in the path of this. Father, we, we offer you just the simplest words and the deepest sentiment this morning as we say, be with the people in the path of this storm today. Shelter their hearts and be with them as they go through this difficult situation, Father, and just I just pray that you would Keep everyone safe, including my family. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome to the wrap-up of the book of Galatians. You know, we're funny around here. We usually measure uh, the time it takes to teach a book in decades. If you're from here, you know that joke. I think it took us 22 years to get through Matthew. We did a little better with Mark. I think we did it in 11 years and three months. Well, we've been in Galatians for, I don't know, six or eight weeks, seven weeks. Um, so this is like super, this is our sprint. This is our quarter mile run, okay? So we're going to wrap up the book of Galatians today, which means I have no idea what Trey's going to talk on next week. I, I don't care. I'm going to be in California, so he can figure it out. Uh, but we're going to wrap up what for uh, us has been, I think it's been a rewarding little study. It's been an interesting little journey into the mind of Paul. Paul is not, I'll confess, Paul is not my favorite biblical figure. 
He's one that's difficult to find deep affection for, for me. He's, he's manic. He's all over the place. He, he kind of comes and goes, and he says bombastic things. But, but Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, 500 years ago, said of this book of Galatians, he called it his beloved. He called it his beloved Katerina, and that was his term for his wife, Katerina von Bora, who he married later in life after he was expelled from the Catholic Church. But he had great affection for this book, and I think I've developed great affection for this book as well. It, uh, it, it could be considered simple by comparison to journeys through the book of, say, Matthew or Mark. Simple in focus, but don't confuse simplicity with insignificance. I think this is the quintessential summary of the Christian message in a single epistle written to a group of churches. It's, as I can tell, if you've heard me over the last few weeks, it's the, one of the only epistles Paul wrote that I can see internal evidence that he fully intended it to be widely circulated. Mostly he's addressing things in the church in Thessalonica, the church in Ephesus. He's talking to a particular situation in Corinth, but in the, church, in the, in the churches of the Galatian region, he seems to be intending that these words be scattered among all the churches, which offers us a, just a different little sight glass to peer in, right? Because there's something more universal about what he's saying, something more global about what he's saying. You know, the New Testament is honest about Paul. If you read between the lines, not everything that it preserves about him is super wonderful and super lovely. Sometimes Paul puts posts up on social media that get actually taken down by the administrators. You know what I'm saying? He's been known to say things like, I wish they would just castrate themselves. How sensitive. What a lovely, lovely guy. That would be censured by Facebook, right? Maybe not. He wasn't always soft-spoken, but it seems to me that he's generally strategic in his messaging, meaning when he's done writing about an idea or about an issue, there's not going to be any safe place left to hide. So if feeling smug and feeling comfortable is your thing, Paul's not your guy. He's the lawnmower that levels every blade of grass. There's no way to feel smug about conversations with Paul. He's the guy in the coffee shop you don't want to engage because nobody survives feeling good. You get what I'm talking about. You know, some of the writings in our scriptures seem to be written to engage the onlooking world. You could call those, you could call those uh, marketing or maybe external affairs issues. And then there are p- portions of our scriptures that are focused laser beam on internal affairs. Which do you think Galatians is? The opening couple words of chapter six is your giveaway. Is Galatians focused on the house of faith or is Galatians focused on the onlooking world? What do you think? I thought that would be an easy question. External. External. You think it's external. Who thinks it's internal? Yeah. We're going to get there. This is a letter to the family. This is a letter to the family of faith. It's a public reading of the last will and testament to the gathered cousins and siblings around the kitchen table, right? This is going to be Paul's Final words in chapter 6 as we wrap this up. And so let's just read these words together. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Brothers and sisters, here's how you know who Paul's writing to. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If you've been tracking with us in Galatians, you'll understand why he's interested in helping them solve what they need to do to fulfill the law of Christ. Each one should test their own actions, Paul writes in verse four. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. Nobody I knew does that. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Verse seven, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. 
Whoever sows to, the ple- to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And you might get to this part in Galatians and say, why is he talking about do good? Like we've been talking about theology and freedom and deeply internal things. And now Paul's saying, listen, just, just do good things. Interesting. We're going to get there. And then in verse 11, one of my favorite verses in the, in the, in the, in the scriptures, and this might help you understand what I mean when I say, I'm not sure the, that the writers knew that this was going to be for the whole world. He says, see what large letters I use when I write this with my own hand. How profoundly inspired of the Holy Spirit is that piece of scripture? It's just an odd little, see, I'm writing in large letters. I guess that meant it was important. I have no idea. Verse 12, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they, they want you to be circumcised and that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God, to the chosen people of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear my, on my own body the marks of Jesus. The grace in the Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. So let's not forget the reason. Laura did a good job last week in her salmon pants of reminding us, right? I'm Laura. Did anybody else notice that? I, I felt like jumping up on stage and Laura, you can put that down so we can see your face. I think this made her feel safe. So she, You'd have to be here last week. But she did a great job of, of sort of teasing out the context of this book. Let me just say a couple things about that. And we reiterate these because it's important to keep this in mind as you read these books. He's writing to a group of people who are asking the question, what must we do to please God? What has to be on the list of essentials in order for us to please God? See, Paul said it's the freedom of Christ. It's believing and accepting and living a life of obedience to the work of Christ. And then other people come along and say, yeah, and compliance with the law. So Paul is straightening out this situation by saying, let's address the legal obligation on you as a party in this deal with God. What precisely is required of the faithful? Paul would go on to say obedience in Christ in multiple places he writes, demonstrating total resistance to add anything to the gospel would be one way of tweeting what Paul says. The bottom line of this book is freedom, provided by Christ, adding nothing to it. So legal compliance and the question of what do we have to do is what he's addressing. He could have ended his book simply on the conversation of freedom, and frankly, we would have been better off. But he goes a couple of weird places, I think he intuits where we're headed as a family, right? He knows what's going to happen next, internal affairs, always break down in family dynamics and eventually things start to turn sideways. So being right is far easier than being in unity, right? You know this by now. Being right about a situation is so much easier than being kind and being gentle. If you know church history, you know that the church has spoken most clearly when pressed and squeezed. When anything is squeezing on the outside, right? I always think of Nacho Libre when I say squeeze. When anything is pressing on the church from the outside, be it disaster, be it heresy, be it economic woe, whatever it be, persecution, whenever the church is being squeezed is when she produces her clearest thinking, not just about doctrine and belief, but about our posture to the world. Another way of saying this is that pressure creates clarity and refreshes mission. 
the outside pressure of false teachers in the church of Galatian region, of the Galatian region, actually produced the right scenario for which Paul could, could push through and say, this is the clearest thing. This is the thing we add nothing else to. Challenge will always refine our posture. You might pray that the hand of God be stayed in your life, that you see no economic issues, that you see no trouble, no challenge, no setback, no problems in your life. But the reality is, is you would be praying against the hand of God often because what produces the posture of Christ in your life are those things that push in from the outside. What's so entertaining about us and the fights that we pick as believers and the wars that we wage as believers is that they're most often fought within the family of faith. Now, I don't know if I'm going to be talking to you today. I'm certainly going to be talking to myself. Most of us are pretty nice people. But if I asked you to envision the image or the face of the person that accelerates your heartbeat and gets you defensive and makes your fists ball up, makes you drive faster, makes you angrier, most of you would conjure the face of someone who's in the house of faith who doesn't like what you think, who doesn't agree with what you believe, most of us have, don't need enemies. We've got enemies within. We create enemies out of cousins and siblings. I'm glad that's not you. I'm glad that's just me. It's the people who publicly denounce and who challenge the people that I love. It's the people who say, I've lost my faith. I've lost my way. It's the people who use that word that I despise probably most of all. Oh, that's heretical. He's a heretic. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Those are the people that come to my mind when you say, who are you waging your wars against? Everything gets real at the level of internal affairs, guys. Everything gets raw at the kitchen table. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I live in a weird world of ideas unlike yours, but I happen to think we share some of this in common. Here's some of the things that I've been thinking about as it relates to family affairs and internal affairs the decimation of any kind of unified voice around what the evangelical church thinks in the post-age of Trump. There's nothing left of a, of a consensus on anything anymore. There's absolutely nothing left. I think of the Nashville Statement. I think of the pain and the hurt. I think of the, how to describe the timing. The most absurd of all times to release something like that. I think of vicious attacks on Joel Osteen, and if you don't know me, you might not know that I worked for the man for three years. Vicious and uninformed attacks on a man who, listen, I don't know what you can say about Houston. Here's what I can say. I don't know a family who loves that city more than the Osteen family, and they've only been at it for 75 years. Vicious, unfounded, Twitter, basement, hot pocket, 38-year-old adult attacks. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Issues in the family of faith. I think about the Christian world's response to our little church's statement that we're just going to love everyone. Closer to home, I think about the regular nuclear, nuclear standoffs in my home between siblings over, I don't know, whatever. You know, siblings. <laughs> Tougher still, I think of the turf wars that my ignorance creates with my children over my need to control their lives. Family affairs, internal issues. I think of Facebook posts that go sideways that become hijacked by other people with axes to grind with me personally. I think of my own ignorant and dismissive responses to those people. I'm thinking about the thoughts of someone I heard on a liturgist podcast who, said, who talks about how it is that the father loves the elder and the younger son. Both sons had the heart of their father, the prodigal and the elder son. And what we spend most of our time doing is arguing between the family. I think of the words that Jonathan Martin wrote in his blog this week, a blog entitled, Our Resistance is Repentance, his response to the Nashville Statement. 
issues of the family of faith. Paul wraps up this book on internal affairs in this conversation about how to live in community, what to accept as orthodoxy, what not to accept. He writes it, he wraps it up with these two ideas, and boy, I wish he would have picked something else. He says, gentleness and kindness are how we are to deal with one another. I know I'm the only one, but both of these characteristics come natural to me when dealing with lost people. Give me Buddhist, atheist. Give me people who hate Jesus, who despise the church. Give me those people, and I can be kind, and I can be gentle. But give me my cousins who think my scripture, my view of scripture is low and theirs is high. And boy, you, the, the fists come out. When talking to people who don't yet know that they are the obsession of the living God and he will not stop until he has them back with talking, those people, kindness and gentleness, are just axiomatic. They're just, they just flow. But for those who denounce and who pick apart and write statements from beautiful cities about things that they believe that literally cut us all out except them, that's a different story. It's different with the family of faith, isn't it? Think about it. It's different. It's different with our brothers and sisters. It's where I'm capable of such insult and injury. Nasty little knack I have for dismissing people in their voice. As if my education is better than theirs. As if my take on scripture is better than theirs. I'm like the little sibling who when the parents leave the room whispers to the baby, you're adopted. You're not really from here. You guys are wrong. You've been wrong for 500 years, right? And we go into all that. Let's just read through a couple of these passages. I'm going to go somewhere very vulnerable today. I'm going to hit two points, and I have Jen's permission. That's how we do things here. <laughs> Women preach, and we get permission from Jen to, to go crazy places. Verse six, or chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Paul's going to put us in this discipleship back and forth, this little come and go, this little here and there that's going to be action, reflection, action, reflection, action, reflection. And I'm, I'm, I'm willing to just suggest to you that your entire life is going to be those two things going back and forth, action, reflection, Action, reflection. In verse one, he says, this whole section establishes that rhythm of, of discipleship. And Paul is basically saying, listen, not just when you disagree, when you actually catch people in sin, gentleness should be your first weapon. Restore them gently because to live by the Spirit is to be gentle with those who are caught in sin. Gentle. I hate that word. It doesn't come natural to me. He says, gently restore a sibling, a cousin, a, a, a brother, or a sister that, who's caught in sin. It's not even taking, he's not even saying with those who have a slight different nuance on that particular text. He's saying, be gentle with those who are caught in sin. That may be important. I might, that might be God. <laughs> Seriously, nobody's going to answer that phone? Second part of that same verse, verse but watch yourselves. Or you also may be tempted, right? Action, reflection. He says, gently restore. We love Juan. Juan, it's okay. Don't sweat it, buddy. <laughs> gently restore the brother caught in sin. But watch yourself. Keep an eye on your own heart, right? Paul will say. This speaks to posture, which I think is, almost sums up the whole point of the kingdom. If only we watched our own thoughts and our own actions with such vigilance as we watched those of Joel Osteen whose church would have been underwater if he moved the floodgates, y'all. It's not real complicated. 
There's, not, there's one shower in the whole building. And how come he doesn't open it? He doesn't want the dirty people. You have no idea who's there on a Sunday morning. Trust me, they smell like the street. That's who's there. Any other, just take my word for it. I worked for the man for three years. But you get what I'm saying, right? Action, reflection, it speaks to our posture. If we only watched ourselves the way we watch others, things would be different. Verse two, Paul carries on. He says, carry one another's burdens. And this may, and in this, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Again, back to action. To a people who are obsessed enough with legal compliance with the law that they would make grown adults undergo circumcision, he's gonna say, you wanna sum it all up? You wanna be in total compliance with the law? Carry one another's burdens. Now, any legal minds in the room look at those almost ridiculous summaries and say that can't possibly sum up 611 laws in a thousand years of history. You bet. That's what Paul's in the business of doing. Carry one another's burdens, in verse two he says, and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. It's not that difficult. Serve one another. Verse three and four. If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions, Paul says. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Again, a blow to the haughty attitudes of those who sit in the corner labeled right and think they can speak down, which means, you know, condescending to the rest. Listen, here's what I'm learning this week. The gospel still has a great work of conversion to do on me until my words to people who disagree with me can be characterized with gentleness and kindness. I'm talking about the ones who think I'm crazy, the ones who think I'm nuts, the ones who tell me I lost my faith, until my response to their challenge is kindness and gentleness, then the gospel has not yet converted my own heart. So many people busy storming around the world, stomping on cultures, destroying things, trying to take the gospel places. The gospel needs to convert their own soul first. You know, the great thing about being a missionary is that there's actually a chance that the gospel you preach might convert your soul. The great hope of the nations is not some white person from America. The hope of the nations is that God will find some way to find a body to represent the posture of Christ. And as a career missionary growing up in that space, I'm telling you, that does not characterize a lot of what I was involved in. Here's what I'm learning. Posture matters. It's important, especially to those of the household of faith. Remember what Jesus says, love all, especially the ones who persecute you? Wait, 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 no, no. I'm struggling to love my neighbor and my friends. Jesus says, yeah, 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 yeah. No, especially your enemies and the ones who persecute you. And yet all of our trenches are dug around our ideas. And mostly those ideas are argued between members of the house of God. I've got two thoughts for us today. Two things that I've been working on. Two things that have captivated my soul this week as we're torn between how to mobilize for Harvey, right? How to respond to what we're seeing in the press. How to mobilize to Florida. You know, the problem with Florida is it's not on its way anywhere. And after 10 million people evacuate, they're all gonna wanna get home. So if they need help, there's no good way to get there. It's two and a half days to my house from here where my parents live. There's no, so as we've been thinking about these things, this is what's been stirring in my soul. Number one, we lose our way when we become the defenders of God. When I consider my role in the world to defend truth and defend what God stands for, everything else that comes after that is gonna be crooked and skewed. And it won't be gentle and it won't be kind. Number two, we lose our way when we speak to the wrong audience. Okay, so let's unpack these things slowly. 
You know that popular mythology that says, that tells the people of the church that we're the defenders of the gospel, that we have to speak on things because somebody's got to preserve the truth? Question for you, who defends himself if not God? Deuteronomy 32 talks about it. Psalms 18 is written completely about it. Zechariah talks about it in his three visions. God is God's own defender. He is our defender. He is our protector. Everything downstream of that impulse that says, I have to speak up for God, generally in my life, I don't know about you, but generally in my life, it's not gentle and it's not kind. It's full of shrill, corrective, dismissive gobbledygook. It's a technical word, Trey. Think of that little scene on the night when Jesus was betrayed, when everything crackles with importance. You know, the final things of all the great, those final deals are the most important sometimes of the people who show the way. Jesus has assembled his people and he's going to put actual example behind what he's been trying to tell them for three years. Peter is a man of action and so what's the action Peter takes? First of all, he refuses the towel in the wash basin and he cuts off ears of people who come against Jesus. I am the defender of this man, Jesus, and Jesus says, put your sword away. You're gonna die by the same sword you're wielding. If you can't take action to lose the outer garments and don the serving towel and wash the feet of the people at this table, half of which were politically active in the wrong direction. One of them was about to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and the, the other ones, as far as we know, were clueless as to what was going to happen. you got to wash their feet, Jesus says, otherwise you have no part of me. We are not the defenders of the gospel. Watch me. We are the people who embody the posture of Jesus in the world. And it doesn't take a degree in philosophy or the history of religions or God forbid theology to figure out how to be the posture of Jesus in the world. It just doesn't. In fact, I'm beginning to think that the more educated we get, the less capable we are of just keeping it real and keeping it simple. We don't need people surfing social media defending God. God is more than capable of defending himself. Why am I saying this? Because sometimes I try this and it always comes out the wrong side of the gun. You know what I'm talking about. I am the gospel's embodiment. I am the flesh and bones of the gospel in the world. I am the model of what redemptive love needs to look like. I am the brokenness that has been restored by the love of Christ. I'm not the speaker of truth, the defender of all that's right. My perspective is but one. I will never forget the opening day of grad school when I was in seminary, Dr. Sharp got up and he says, we are not the first to believe and for one second, like that book that the title encapsulates the whole thing, you read the title and you've read the book, you know those books? That one statement just upset everything that mattered to me and I realized, you know what? Ours is a view, not the view. We are what flesh and blood look like when redeemed by God and living in that Christ-like posture to the world. I am not God's defender. I am not the defender of faith. I'm not the definer of truth. This is my confession today. I'm not the definer of orthodoxy. I'm not the one to correct everything, every take, every perspective. I am seeker. I am transformed by love. I am the welcome extender. I am the posture of the kingdom. I am the one who is known, not the one who knows. Speaking to myself today. Thanks, Car- Carson's in the house today. Thank you, Carson. <laughs> Carson went to Moody. That's where they learned to speak up. Listen, I am skin. I am bones. Actually, that's actually not true. That's like the whitest school in downtown Chicago. <laughs> the truth is about Moody is you sit there like this. They've got little places in the pews where you put your hands. So, you don't, so you're not tempted to move them. So you're like, that's not even funny. Actually, that's funny. You have to know Chicago. 
But hear me, I am the skin and the bones. I am that person who has been reconstituted, recreated. I've been rewired. I've been redeemed by the unconditional, unstoppable, uncontainable love of God. That's my posture to the world. Not the defender of God. He doesn't need my help. I am proof that God is good. Look at my life. Look at the brokenness. Look at the dysfunction. Look what God can do. That's our posture. Paul says gentleness and kindness. This is what it's about. I'm not the host of this wild and extravagant banquet. I am a guest and I don't control the guest list. Anyone who steps up and starts to tell you who's not invited, I'm telling you, grab your wallet and back out. Because come some point, at some point, they're going to begin to define things the way they see them, and they are one way of seeing them. We do not control the guest list. We've been invited to a banquet that does not take into consideration our worthiness. It welcomes us to the table that Jesus Christ has set. That is our role. We get to, we get to set plates and silverware. We get to welcome people as they're welcomed by God. I am not good at discerning who's right and who's wrong. At one point, the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, let's start, let's start pulling this stuff out. The wheat and the tares in the same field. And Jesus prophetically speaks to them and says, you know what? You don't know the difference. Wait until the end. Ours is not the role of defender of all that's true. I'm the body of God, not the defender of God. I'm learning to push through this mythology. You know what? In America, this is basically the gospel. This is why we do things. This is why we write stuff. This is why we have websites and magazines and all this stuff because somebody's got to defend truth. Guess what? I'm not sure it ever was our role, guys. Everything downstream is just nasty dismissal of each other. And the world isn't interested. Have you noticed? The world doesn't care about the particularities of our view of the atonement. Which of the six can it be? They're all historic and they all come from scripture. You decide. Your neighbor doesn't care. Houston doesn't care. The fifth ward of Houston that is underwater right now does not care when we think Jesus is coming back. What they need is this stuff. All right, I'm preaching to myself. I'm about to get excited. Sorry. So that first thought that's been bouncing around in my head this week is that we lose our way when we become defenders of God. That second thought is we lose our way when we speak to the wrong audience. And frankly, this is something Jen is teaching me. Here's my final thought. I always lose my way and I get nasty with the family when I speak to the wrong audience. And here's my point. You see, if I'm the body of Christ and I'm in the world for a purpose, then who is the audience? Those who don't yet know how deeply loved by God they are. The audience isn't the choir. Because when we speak to the people on the inside and we just speak to the choir, all we're left to do is further refine what we already believe. Guys, we're here for a reason. If anything could illustrate why the churches in the world today, it's natural disaster after natural disaster. There aren't enough first responders to respond to the people on roofs in Houston. You know who's responding? Faith is responding. With Google Docs and pulling things together, the church, it's the people, it's the network of people that are responding to pull each other out of these situations. If anything should illustrate to us who we are here to speak to, it's what we're under right now. Ours is the role speaking to the dying world that does not yet know how deeply loved by God they are. As soon as I lose track of this and start speaking to those who are theologically adept and those who are, you know, trying to gain points with these people, or worse, trying to speak to myself because I feel some sort of loss, and so I've got to come out and say this thing so I can buck my own self up, the next thing you hear is corrective and shrill and dismissive. Who should be the real audience that we're thinking of when we post on social media? Who should be the people we're addressing? Who are these white men in Nashville 
who think they're speaking to the world. You know who they're speaking to? They're speaking to themselves. That's the only one listening. How do we know? Because everything else downstream is pain and broken bones. It hurts everyone involved except themselves. They're speaking out of loss. They're speaking to themselves. They got the audience wrong, guys. And they're calling it a church council. Guess what? It's got nothing in common with a church council. Church councils were assembled to speak to the world. They're speaking to themselves, and they feel great, and the rest of us are like, what was that? They've lost track of the audience, you see. Who is our real audience? I'm going to tell you this. When we get the audience right, the message follows. It's the world who does not yet know the redemptive love of Christ. That's our audience. That's who we should be speaking to. Jen's teaching me this. I've never been corrected by Jen before about a Facebook post. But she did it this week. You can't find it. I took it down because I'm a good, because I know my place on the team. You know what happened? I got nasty. I got dismissive. If you could translate it into a few letters, it was just like, bleh. And her words to me were, you know what? Don't ever lose track of who the audience is. That's not who we're speaking to. Did you know you can't say the right thing to the wrong person? If someone hates you, it doesn't matter what you say. It's not going to change that fact. So don't spend time speaking to the choir. I learned this from Joel Osteen. I don't know. I don't frankly care what you think about Joel Osteen. That's not the church I would build either. Why am I here? Because I got bored and this is much more, much more engaging to me than Lakewood Church. But one thing he did teach us, and he, he reiterated this at every turn. He says, we are not here to address the body of Christ. We are here to speak to that one empty seat that maybe, just maybe, that broken person can find this week. That's why we exist. It's not about speaking to the choir. I've watched him stop a service in mid-recording and say, there's two empty seats right here. Somebody get in those empty seats. Because when people see this broadcast, I want them to understand there's, that this is full of people seeking Jesus. We don't want empty seats. Fill that up and then go right back to the recording. It's not about what the body says. It's not about what Christianity Today says. It's not about what these people write. Don't spend your time talking to the choir, he would say, the convinced and the converted. Speak to the world. Speak to the world. When we do, the gospel follows. And this is why Paul ends this letter, this little edict on freedom, this masterwork of Christian liberty. He ends with this simple encouragement. Bear one another's burdens. House of faith. Treat each other kindly and with gentleness. And if you do that, then you have complied with it all. He's talking to us. He's talking to the family. He's talking to the house of faith. He knew we'd make enemies out of each other. He says it's gentleness and it's kindness. It's far more compelling than defense and doctrine. Did you know you can get a degree in the defense of the faith? Did you know you can do that? You can go spend $100,000. You can get yourself a degree in apologetics. And then you get stuck on the plane train in Atlanta, Georgia, try to explain to somebody what a degree in apologetics is. Yeah, they don't know. It doesn't matter. You can do that if that's what you want to do. I think what, I think what the world is crying out for are people who just get the posture right. I don't have all the words for you. I used to know the answers, guys. I grew up in this. This is kind of the family trade. I knew all the answers. I was totally certain until I wasn't. I don't have the words. What's the posture is the key. All I know is that my Jesus is the one who's in the dirt with the woman who is 100% guilty. Not only is she guilty, she's probably half naked in front of all the judgment of the town and they're ready to kill her for her crimes and my Jesus is in the dirt with her. That's posture. That's our role as a church. I gotta settle down. You know, it's funny when, 
No, I'm not going to say that. That would be inappropriate. Jonathan Martin, who was here the Sunday after Easter. You all remember him? He's a big, tall guy with a big voice. Allison sat in the front row, and Jonathan's like, I don't know, nine feet tall. And she said, my neck hurts. I'm trying to look up. <laughs> Jonathan Martin is one of the great prophets of our day, and he writes compellingly. He writes, uh, he wrote that article called Our Response is Repentance. And I think it's, it's powerful stuff. But I just want to end with these words, because I can't say it any better than he can. And then let's pray. And then let's just worship together and take communion. He says this. See if this convicts you. He says, Christians have no other reason in the world to identify their enemies than to figure out who Jesus is calling them to love and to bless. The most basic terms of loving our neighbors as ourselves does not require theological degrees, but a restoration of the sacrament of foot washing, right? One of the last things Jesus did with his disciples. He says, if you deem Muslims as your enemy, your call as a disciple is to wash their feet. If you have thought that the LGBTQ folks are your enemy, then your call is to wash their feet. If you think fundamentalist Christians, I wish you would have stopped. (laughs) Jonathan, if you're listening, seriously, seriously. If you think fundamentalist Christians are your enemy, he says, and I'm especially sympathetic to this view at this moment, he says, your call is to wash their feet. There is no place to hide. There is no safe place after Paul is done. There is no way to say, yep, I got this freedom thing, man. It's me and Paul. We got this. There is no safe place. If you have identified throughout these tumultuous weeks that thing, that issue, that person, that voice that makes you defensive, then you know who you need to love. Then you know whose feet you need to wash. You know the next step. People are like, I don't know what my purpose in life is. What gets your heart rate elevated? Go and wash the feet of that. That's what Paul would say, and it's what Jonathan says. Let's pray.